Hi everyone, Data Stories number 27. Hi Moritz. <laughs> Hi Enrico, <laughs> how are you doing? You sound I'm very energetic. Very, yeah, <laughs> you think so? <laughs> well, you know, I go with the weather. The weather is not that good today. Yeah, yeah. So, I know what you mean. Yeah. Hey, it's been a long time, man, yeah. since our last episode. That's true. Yeah. How was your September? Uh, good. Busy, 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 but good. I'm excited. Semester has started? Semester started. I have a few students working with me, and it's fun. It's lots of fun. Just yesterday, I came from a... I gave a very interesting exercise in class where I had, I, I asked my students to, to sketch visualizations by hand, uh, and I gave them um, actually a data set and a few questions coming from a research paper. And after they provided their solutions, I showed them the solution from the researchers. Okay, the original <laughs> the, graphic. Oh, the wow. original, the re yeah, the original graphics, and that was fun. That was fun. Uh -huh. Yeah, my students are yes. good, actually. I'm surprised. <laughs> Did they do better than the original researchers? Hopefully. Um, I don't think they did better, but there were very interesting and stimulated discussions. So this kind of stuff, it's always good to to. I mean, sometimes I have the feeling that I'm learning myself more than what I teach them. <laughs> and it's fun. It's cool. a lot of fun. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I was also just teaching. So I went back to my old oh. university to teach the cognitive science students. Wow. Some database. Yeah, that was really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back to the mothership. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Spend a day talking about rainbow color scales, roughly. <laughs> because, you know, they always have the fMRI data and the also the machine learning people, they always have these magic carpets, you know, these these error landscapes and it's always rainbows. <laughs> and so I think we spent the whole day just discussing these. <laughs> have you, have you, did you check this, uh, have you seen this very nice series from the guy from NASA? Yeah, uh, it's fantastic. That's a, that's the color very, series. We should link that. It's really I great. love that one. Absolutely. I love it. Yeah. 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 Well, anyway, we have another fantastic guest today. It's my pleasure to introduce Kate Crawford here today. Hi, Kate. Hi, guys. How are you going? We are doing great. So we, we invited Kate because uh, we wanted to talk about big data criticism or skepticism and she's one of the leading figures out there talking about big data and what are the limitations and what kind of big question we should also ask on top of big data, right? So everyone seems to be super excited. Everything seems to be super, super good. But of course, there are also some weird aspects and maybe limitations and maybe too much hype around it, right? So we wanted to, we invited her because she's really prominent. So she's being, she has a paper out. Call it, uh, titled Critical Questions for Big Data. She's been invited in a number of different places. I think I think you've been at Strata last year or this year, right? Yeah. 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 And uh, another interesting article in the Harvard Business, Business Review, The Hidden Biases in Big Data and so on. Um, she also has lots of jobs. <laughs> she's principal, <laughs> principal researchers at Microsoft Research, visiting professor at MIT, senior fellow at 
uh, Information Law Institute at NYU here where I am, an associate professor at the University of New South Wales. Wow, Kate, how can you manage that? <laughs> <laughs> Very busy, and I spend a lot of time on planes. <laughs> <laughs> So we normally ask our guests uh, to introduce themselves. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background, how you, how you got here to the point of how did you get interested in big data and all the rest? Oh, yeah. it's, a, it's, a lo it's a long story. Once upon a, a time story. in a land far, far away. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a professor uh, and I've been a professor for over a decade now. Gosh, it's actually 12 years uh, and I was originally based in Australia and I was heading up my own research institute at the University of New South Wales uh, working with uh, Catherine Mumby who's a media researcher there and I had been researching a lot of issues to do with how the internet can be thought of as both uh, social and cultural technology and I've been doing that for a long time and seeing the emergence of social media Uh, in the early days struck me as being very interesting. So I took that very seriously at a time when people weren't necessarily taking things like Facebook uh, and Twitter seriously. And I found enormous amount of potential and also a lot of questions around how social media was going to transform particular kinds of engagements and communication. Uh, and as that grew, I connected with a whole lot of other researchers internationally who were also interested in these kinds of spaces, including Dana Boyd, who was based at Microsoft Research. And she invited me over here as a visiting professor. So I spent some time collaborating with her here, which is where we wrote our first paper together, which was the uh, six provocations for big data. That was back in 2011, uh, which was a paper that we gave at the uh, Oxford Internet Institute for their 10th anniversary. And then we started doing more and more research and um, have published papers since, including the critical questions paper that you mentioned. Yes. And uh, they invited me to, to come over here and to stay. And so in addition to being at Microsoft Research, I'm also a professor over at MIT in the Center for Civic Media, working with Ethan Zuckerman and others, uh, which is a fantastic group of people as well. And in terms of what draws me to some of these big data questions, I think it's the, it's the shift that happened uh, really just in the last five years in terms of the, the kinds of human life that are now quantifiable, the kinds of data that we can scrape and that we can study and analyze that represent the social graph, that represent the way we communicate with people, that represent our tastes and our preferences and the way that we see the world. That's a pretty extraordinary shift. That's a, that's a different way of visualizing human interaction and human communication. And it also has a lot of flow-on effects uh, and a lot of serious questions, as well as an enormous amount of potential. I um, have also been doing a lot of work in crisis informatics, looking at how the way people communicate changes during a crisis event. And that's also been absolutely extraordinary to see how much of that we can now gather and analyze uh, from a sort of a data perspective. So through these kinds of engagements, I became somebody who was both doing big data studies, as they are, as they're loosely called. We can talk about that term and whether or not that is a good term or not. I have my own issues with that term, but it seems to have become the shorthand. Um, so while I'm also doing these studies, I've, I've been seeing a set of recurring problems. And I started to notice these problems and I started to write about them and started to talk to other researchers about them. 
Uh, and we all realized that there were these, these patterns that, that weren't being talked about publicly, uh, problems in the way that these kinds of data sets are being used. Some of those problems were, were essentially methodological. Some were epistemological. They're about how they understand knowledge. Uh, some were ethical. It's like, should we be using these data sets the way that we use them? So these are the questions that are really driving my research at the moment. Oh, that's that's really interesting. I actually didn't realize that your questions came from your own practice. I mean, that, that that's really interesting. One uh, question: What did you study originally, or what was, oh, yeah. was your PhD in, or um, what, what's your mm. background from that end? Yeah, well, I have I have degrees in law and in philosophy, and my PhD is in critical media studies. Nice. Yeah, that, that's a perfect combination. Yeah. So um, before we talk about the let's say, the, the critical view, can we maybe sketch first what, what is like a data optimistic view or data positivistic view? <laughs> like, I mean, we all come from, I mean, we all work a lot with data and we're all surrounded by data and we find it very exciting. And just this, this article came back to my mind by Chris Anderson in 2008. Uh, it's called The End of Theory and basically it writes like every special science will be um, made obsolete by just data science, more or less. I think that's his... His mm. main claim that you don't need doctors, you just need people who are really good at crunching <laughs> medical documents. Or, you know? oh, he's, got, he's got a great line in that article where he, he says that you know, who knows why people do the things they do. The point is that they just do it and we can track it. And that's all we need because basically with enough data, the numbers speak for themselves. Uh -huh. And that, that has been one of those incredibly famous phrases that I think has galvanized this view that somehow numbers are enough and that correlation is just as important as causation and that really ultimately data is more important than why questions, the why we do things, the mm -hmm. why, you know, why that data might be there and what the context might be. Uh, and and I, I guess I ascribe those kinds of perspectives uh, under the title of like big data fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like a religion, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's yeah. a religion. It's like the articles of faith is that, you know, more data is better always. And then mm -hmm. the bigger the data, the closer to objective truth you become. So I think that kind of fundamentalism is very much in its absolute zenith at the moment. It's, it's at its height and people are very excited about data cracking all of the great problems that we face from climate change through to improving health systems, health systems through to you know simply understanding why people do what they do. And I think there's a lot of questions that we need to ask about that enthusiasm. The enthusiasm is great, don't get me wrong. I mean the reason I work in the lab that I work in, which you know I sit next to people who are experts in machine learning. I sit next to people who are doing extraordinary work in algorithmic game theory. I talk to people who are, you know, in theoretical physics. And the reason why a lab like this is so extraordinary is that we can talk about the strengths and weaknesses of the absolutely cutting edge emerging science in this field. And there are serious limitations. So thinking about those limitations along with the hype, I think is actually really important because that's where we're going to produce better data research and, and ultimately better big data science. Mm -hmm. So what are the main, the main problems you see at the moment? <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> let, let me, How I'm, many hours we have? Look, I'll just give you three that, uh, that I think have been animating a lot of my thoughts 
and a lot of the papers and talks that I've been giving recently. Um, so, so, Kate, be, before you go through through these examples, through sure. these items, I'm I'm just curious about are the ones that you're going to mention, those that come from your own practice originally, what you said at the beginning, that you basically start discovering that there were problems with while you were doing basically big data analysis? Mm -hmm. I think that's, that is certainly the basis of the first, the first issue, which is... Okay, yeah. Yeah, I was just curious about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, certainly in the last couple of years, I've spent a lot of time with people who are doing what, what is loosely called big data research. And a lot of the, uh, the, the work that's happening and a lot of the, the ways we're trying to make it better uh, sit under these three categories. So okay. some of it is animated directly by work that I've done and collaborators um, that I work with, and some of it is raised by things that I see in the, in the industry much more broadly, and I'm referring both to uh, the academic side of, of big data research as well as what I'm seeing in the technology sector. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's personal, and I think it's also it's, it's sectoral in that sense. Uh-huh. So yeah, look, the top three for me is this, first of all, this myth of objectivity. The second one is the possibility of algorithmic discrimination. And the third one is the enormous difficulty of anonymization. And somewhere between those three, you can see there's questions that relate to method. There are questions that relate to how we think about fairness and justice in big data. And there are questions that relate to ethics and privacy and how we're actually going to think about keeping these data sets secure, which is actually a really big problem. Uh, so you can see that there's a set of concerns there that, that have a spectrum through to the very nuts and bolts pragmatics of you know, what kind of methods we're applying and what kinds of assumptions are behind those methods through the epistemological questions of what does this data actually represent through to the ethical questions of you know, how we're using it and mm -hmm. who it's for and, you know, how do we protect it? Mm -hmm. So let's, let's so, dive into the yeah. first one. Yeah, absolutely. So, so isn't it like that? If you have more data, you have a better approximation of reality. I mean, has to be like that, right? Yeah. It's interesting. And I, and I think for me, the, um, the real contact point for this came from when I, I first started looking at the way that social media data was being used during crisis events. So this was when I was based in Australia and uh, in 2010 and 2011, there was the largest ever flood in the history of Queensland, which is the, um, uh, a northern state. And the floodplain was extraordinary. It was, it was about the size of France. I mean, it was a huge floodplain and it was affecting large numbers of communities. And we were gathering the tweets and looking at the tweets and how people were sharing information. And there were some really fascinating things to be found in that data set. First of all, we were seeing how people were helping each other try to find and access the, the resources that were still available. So that was things like, you know, which road is open? How, mm -hmm. do, I, how do I get from this town to the next town? Uh, you know, which, which areas are possible? Through to... Which shops have milk and bread? Where can I actually get, get food? Uh, through to some very interesting kinds of rumor crushing. So when, when other people were doing things like sending a picture of a shark that was in the waters of Brisbane, people were saying, okay, this is, this is obviously a fake. So <laughs> all, of these, all of these kinds of engagements are happening on Twitter in really interesting ways. But there was a problem at the same time, which is a vast majority of the tweets were coming from 
the capital city of Brisbane, which is actually not where the greatest damage was being experienced in mm -hmm. the state. So even though the Twitter data, you have an enormous number of tweets about what's happening during the floods, they have an inherent skew or inherent bias that leads towards this kind of urban privileged experience of this event and certainly not the event at its most extreme. Yeah. And, and this is important to recognize because, of course, crisis informatics uses a lot of social media data. It's, it's, it's a growing and important field, I would say. So thinking about what that data can tell us, because it can tell us some very useful and productive things, and what it can't tell us is, I think, an important academic task right now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's, I'm aware of a few studies that look at like typical demographics for you know the typical platforms. Uh, like for Twitter, we know, I don't know, it's more people in the cities and more males than in the population and so on. Um, the question is, how do you deal with that? Like, are there ways, are you aware of ways of sort of counterbalancing this bias? Or or should should we just use certain data sets not in certain ways? Like, what, what's the best way out of that? I think there are two ways out of it. Uh, one way that people like to talk about is is sampling. You know, do we, do mm -hmm. we have a that's representative. And I actually think that's extremely difficult to do, uh, partly because of the fact that uh, services like Twitter still have quite a small user base in terms of overall population of any particular country that you might want to point to. Right. Uh, and it skews young, it skews white, it skews uh, more affluent. And these, these are difficult, difficult things to try and offset. What I tend to think is, is a good way to deal with that is to be very, very clear and upfront and explicit about what that data set does represent. Mm -hmm. So it's about in, in our research papers and, and also in the way those papers are reported on, being very, very clear about, okay, these are the kinds of things we're getting in this data set. It's incredibly useful, but it's pertaining to these groups and these kinds of people. And, and that would be a huge improvement because right now what we see is a lot of reporting and, and sometimes even, although fortunately a lot less, sometimes research, when people say, well, this is what, this is what people mm, in the What the world thinks think. about. <laughs> this is what the world thinks because this is what we saw on Twitter and, right. and nothing could be further from the truth because, yeah, yeah. you know, in addition to the fact that The, the Twitter, uh, the Twitter sort of population, the people who are using Twitter are a very kind of small subset. Yeah. Even within that subset, you can ask a whole bunch of really mind-bending questions. One of those mind-bending questions is, what percentage of that data is bots? Mm -hmm. Because we know that there are millions of bot accounts on Twitter, and they're all sending messages, and those messages are yeah. all getting to these data sets. And, and, I, and I speak to research scientists about this all the time. It's actually very difficult to extract those messages from mm -hmm. your with a data set. So therefore, you know, how, how do we even know what, what percentage of that data is human and what percentage is non-human, right? So that actually right. raises a whole lot of really interesting questions. I don't know if you saw that amazing sentiment study that, that came out recently that said, looking at Twitter, we can see that people are saddest on Thursday nights. <laughs> I looked at that and I thought, well, does that also mean bots are saddest on Thursday? <laughs> right, yeah. The <laughs> machines had a long week. <laughs> yeah, is that for bots is it Thursday night it's, yeah. it's really, the minute you start asking these questions you can actually you know really see some of these claims as, yeah. as, as being really broad and sometimes but, but I can really relate to that problem because I mean First of all, if you do data visualization, whenever you make a world map or a United States map, you know, people read it as the whole, you know, it's, yeah. it's very hard to express in a map or a diagram. It's just a small, you know, sample of things we're looking at because 
it always looks complete and it always looks like the, the bird's eye view, right? Yeah. And the second thing is whenever you publish something on the web, the editor will have will want to have a nice catchy headline. You know, it's like they yeah, don't want yeah. a relative clause explaining <laughs> what exactly it was being measured in a headline. And and that's, I think that's a that's a deep problem at the moment that every everything has to be blown up like to be like the super surprising statement about everything at once. Yeah, and I think on top of that, I think whatever kind of information that is supported by by some data as this kind of aura of truth and mm. objectivity, right? And I think that's that's another problem. I think people are more persuaded when you show hard numbers to them. But we, I mean, we know that having numbers doesn't really mean that this is the truth, right? So that's a big issue here as well. Well, Enrico, that's that's exactly right. You said it brilliantly. That is absolutely the problem of this myth of objectivity. And, and once you times that that kind of underlying perception that somehow numbers equal truth, you times that by a factor of n to, to until we get to big data, then you can see how, how easy it becomes to just feel like, well, if it's big data, it's obviously truth because you have a very large number <laughs> or a very large data set attached to it, right? right so right. It's, it's completely understandable that we, that we are in awe of big data studies because they seem to have so much data that how can that possibly be wrong? Yeah. Unfortunately, they are quite often wrong, as we've seen in cases like the Google flu trends uh, example earlier this year where they wildly mispredicted the number of Americans yeah. would experience flu in a season. Now they had enormous data. I and mean, if you think about the, the amount of you know, search engine data that Google has, and it's just extraordinary. And yet they can still make these, these really large errors. So having that skepticism, I think, is powerful as researchers, as thinkers, as designers, because it makes us able to create more nuanced pictures, more nuanced designs, more nuanced studies. Now, completely agree, Moritz, we can't change the way the media is going to report on that. I actually think reporters are getting more and more literate about data too. Yeah, and I that's think, true. Yeah. But, but, you know, to be honest, we, we, we can't change the way, uh, you know, a headline is going to be put on an article that reports on our study. But our studies can be very, very careful and we can actually extremely nuanced and i think it's really i think that's a responsibility that we have as scientists to do yeah and at least if you put out a graphic you know you can have a catchy headline but at least have a sub headline that explains exactly what we're looking at and how it was gathered in which time frame from which platform and not just say the mood of the nation <laughs> or something like that <laughs> sorry to whoever put that out maybe <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think this nicely introduces another problem that I always see that is the problem of literacy, right? I think the data literacy that people have or even statistical literacy that people have. I mean, uh, I'm sure that most people just take things for granted when they see some numbers and just don't realize that these are just numbers, right? We, we are not even, I think to some extent, we are not even trained at school to criticize numbers because numbers are assumed to be the truth, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we are taught that that science is the objective truth, which is actually not totally true in my view of the world. <laughs> I mean, even removing all the biases we've been talking about, all the sampling problems, not necessarily a, a scientific experiment tells the truth, right? It's just one single experiment. And if you look at how science progresses, you make progress only when you have a, a series of positive results, right? And even then, it's a very long and complicated process. I think that's right. And I think it's actually 
fascinating to me to look at the history of this concept of objectivity. Mm-hmm. There's a beautiful book about objectivity written by Lorraine Dustin and Peter Gallison, which looks at how recent the idea of objectivity is in, in science. It, it really isn't a very old idea. This idea that we could actually be completely objective is, is far more recent than you might imagine. And it, it comes hand in hand with a set of technologies like the camera and like the microscope, where we mm-hmm. started to say that these kinds of instruments allow us to remove the human and, and produce this kind of mechanical objectivity. And what's so interesting about that is as, as new tools emerge in history, science responds and it, and it becomes connected to how science depicts objectivity. And with what's you know, now being called the computational turn, you know, this, this, this turn to the, the capacity to have you know, very large computations, very large data sets, that is a tool as well that is starting to shift our idea of what good science looks like and what objectivity looks like. And that's actually a, a radical shift in, in what research is and, and how we understand truth. And this is, this is why epistemology is really at the heart of this. It's, it's about how we understand the very definition of knowledge. And as part of this computational turn, we're, we're starting to, to, to see big data as being how we get to that sort of next level of knowledge and reflection. And I think it, it certainly can be a very powerful tool. But to recognize the limits of that tool is going to be essential or we're going to make a lot of mistakes. Good point. I was actually thinking, so when you, just going back to one of the things that you were saying before about asking the right questions where you are confronted with a new data set, I'm sure most of, many of us, including myself, have been going through some new data sets without even asking myself what kind of uh, biases are there, right? So do you know if there is any source of somewhere that actually tells you, look, if you have a new data set in front of you, you should at least ask yourself these kind of questions. That would be a kind of like a cook, cookbook or yeah, like a checklist, I don't know, like a checklist. Bias checklist kind of like yeah. you have a new data set, first thing to do is this, 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 and this, right? I would love to have something like that. I love this idea. I think we should design it like a color wheel that we can just kind of, <laughs> do you have this kind of data? Oh, then you want to ask these kinds of questions first. Do you have this kind of data? You can just rotate the color wheel around. Is it is it mobile data? Is it social media data from Twitter? Is it from Facebook? Is it from city census? You know, you could get yeah, some really, yeah. you could get a hilarious little, you know, a little heuristic tool that we could use. I think we should market that. What do you reckon? We'll design it and, and, and we can actually release it and see if people hey, would use deal. it. deal. <laughs> see how things happen in this yeah. podcast. <laughs> um, should we move on to the second point? I think you said discrimination, right? Algorithmic discrimination. Yeah, this is a term that's, that's being used uh, to look at the way in which we're actually using data sets to essentially categorize people into ever more precise categories. So it gets interesting. People have been making the claim that somehow because when you're working with big data, it's so abstract, you have these upsets, that it, it doesn't function at the level of group-based discrimination. But it's actually the opposite. Uh, if we look particularly at the way that marketing is using big data, it's, it's to try and put you into, into these categories of, you know, what kind of, what, what's your gender? What's your race? Where do you live? What's mm. your age? And then much more precisely, what do you like to eat? What do you like to drink? Uh, where do you go out at night? You know, what are your entertainment tastes? What are your political preferences? Uh, and we see entire new industries being set up, 
companies like Axiom, who sort of sit in this space of you know, third-party data brokers, who are amassing enormous amounts of data about individuals, actually ascribed to individuals, and, and putting them into these kinds of marketing uh, terminologies around, you know, where you can sell this person these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, that, that's fine up to a point. A lot of people aren't really that concerned about how things get marketed to them. But it's interesting if you put this into a different kind of historical context. So we could go back to, uh, to American history, and you could see where we saw the emergence of redlining, where people who are living in traditionally African-American poor communities were not being offered credit loans and banking loans. Yeah. And this was a serious enough form of discrimination that we saw federal legislation being passed to prevent it. But what's interesting now is that we, we still have that legislation. Redlining is, is, is still illegal in the offline world. But online, if, if you choose to show your ad for a particular type of credit offer only to this particular type mm-hmm. of who has these characteristics, who has this kind of a bank balance and makes them very attractive to banks, you can actually be very precise in determining who will see that? And perhaps somebody who really, really needs that credit offer or really needs that loan will never even see that it exists. Right. And I mean, Facebook, the whole advertising on Facebook is exactly yeah, that it's principle. Exactly, it's, yeah. And everybody loves it because it's so targeted. And Although I have to, I, I don't know if this works for you, but I mean, for me, my Facebook page is completely untargeted. I mean, I can't yeah. tell you how far away yeah. they are. No, the <laughs> trick is just to behave so erratically that you don't fit into any category. <laughs> <laughs> That would be a game, actually. But also in Germany, there's at least the rumor, and I, I, I believe there's something to it, that you're, like where you're calling from when you call a hotline, for instance, or, you know, like, I don't know, you're, you're calling your, your telecommunications provider or so, that there's a scoring system that will um, decide how long you have to wait based on if you come from a rich quarter or a poorer one. Wow. Yeah, because really? I mean, yeah, in the end, you want to like comfort the richer clients because they will pay more in the end. And so you, you make sure they get receive better support. And it's sort of an, yeah, it's a rumor, but a, a one that it seems to be quite well-founded. One question I, I have yeah. then is under the current legislations that we have in our countries, do the existing legislation prevent doing that or not? I mean, no. can so, sorry, no. Kate? Say it again. Uh, no, certainly, they, certainly not uh, in the U.S. Uh, okay, there are some. It's it's interesting to see what's happening in in the U.K. and in parts of Europe. Uh, but certainly in the U.S., no, this is this is absolutely uh, very common. And, and and what's so interesting too is when you start to think about this in the health space. So health data has mm-hmm. often highly regulated. It's been seen as as something that that. And I think rightly so should be really protected and should have a whole lot of protections for consumers around their health data. But in the US, we have HIPAA, which is the act that, um, that, that essentially is there to govern health data. But if, if you get sick, for example, what's the first thing you do? Well, you're probably going to open up a search engine. You're probably going to type in your symptoms and see, mm-hmm. you know, seriously, so what should I take? All of that data. I no longer do that. Sorry for interrupting. <laughs> I get so paranoid. Too scary. I mean, you get so paranoid about that, I and mean, it's crazy. <laughs> Sorry for interrupting. But <laughs> I, I'm with you, but I, I still do it, even though I know that I do it and I kick myself because, of course, you, you read this. Yeah, and it's right. so no, tempting. It's yeah, but it, it's um, it's an incredibly common reflexive habit that's that's that is is absolutely widespread. 
And all of that data is completely unprotected by HIPAA. There's nothing that protects you there. Say, for example, you buy an ebook about cancer survival or you like a, a page for a disease foundation on Facebook. These are very interesting signals about your health, your current state of health that can be mined and can be used to build a picture of you. And that is completely unprotected data that can be moved through any particular service. It can be sold to third-party providers. Uh, and it, it, might be, it might be an accurate signal, but it actually also might be an inaccurate signal. And what's so interesting is that in either of those situations, it can actually still be quite dangerous if that has any kind of, that, if that ends up getting connected to your health insurance premiums or to whether or not somebody decides, you know, do I want to give a, this person a job or mm. do I actually want to rent my house to this person? Yeah, but I mean, that's a horrible vision if, if the interest in something is a problem. You know, it's like, how, what world is that? You know, like, regardless of, you know, how it's connected to your, your well-being or not. The, yeah. the fact that your the your sole interest in something is something that people can judge you for automatically is, is a horrible thought, I think. That's exactly right. I mean, the, the study that, that I think is, is really interesting is the one that was done by Cambridge University mm -hmm. looking at the, the Facebook likes of 60,000 people. And they used those, those likes to develop a model that could predict very sensitive personal information about users, including their sexuality, their ethnicity, their religious views, and, mm -hmm. and even, if, even if they're a previous user of drugs and alcohol. But just and, in an indirect way, so if you listen to these types of bands or you like these types of yeah. movies, then suddenly mm -hmm. um, they can predict that? That's, that's right. And you'd think, well, you know, just, just, just how accurate can that really be? Well, what was really interesting about the study is that they showed you the accuracy in the end. And in the end, they were really good at categorizing whether you were Caucasian or African-American. They had around 95% accuracy there, which is pretty startling. Wow. Yeah. Uh, followed by gender. They were very good at predicting gender. Mm -hmm. Then male sexuality. Uh, apparently, female sexuality is a lot harder to predict. It's <laughs> way down the list. Um, and then even, even lower than that was political leanings, which is interesting because I would have presumed that would be higher, higher right. for this to wow. predict. Yeah. Um, But yeah, but the interesting thing, there's a fine line because, I mean, in principle, like, you know, personalized advertisements or targeted advertisements, I mean, why not? I mean, if I like, you know, these three movies and then I get in, you know, uh, a banner for a fourth movie, I actually like, why not? That's cool. But oh. so in your, in your view, where is the, the creep line or where is the unethical? Yeah, where, where's that border to be drawn? Is, is there any rule of thumb there or any... Any, 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 any ethical, um, an, a hard ethical rule? Yeah, well, this is what is so interesting because I, I feel like this, this test that, of course, was, you know, famously coined by Google, you know, don't be creepy. Like the, the creepy test is, is completely unknown now. We don't really know where the creepy line is. I mean, if we think about some of the things that, that Google is doing, uh, I, I, I would put officially into the creepy category. In fact, just yesterday I was in the... Um, the ladies' bathroom at MIT, and somebody was wearing Google Glass. <laughs> I was there watching. <laughs> like, this is happening. A line has been crossed here. That is, that is creepy indeed. That is yeah. Creepy. And, yeah, um, but you're right. And, and in two, three years, maybe it's not creepy anymore because it's, we, we're just getting used to the, the creepiness. But this is what's interesting. So I think in addition to the test being obviously completely, uh, completely blurry and opaque, 
our sense of what is creepy is changing all the time. So it's, it's actually a really bad heuristic to use. And I think it's, <laughs> it's failed us too many times for us to even, even take it seriously. And what was really interesting about that Cambridge University study is that one of the points the researchers made is that they said they were really worried that this kind of Facebook data, it, it's not going to be used just to market things to you. It's going to be used by employers and mm-hmm. landlords and by government agencies to discriminate against individuals. But, but even, more, even more worryingly, you won't even know that your data has been used to make a discrimination about you or about whether you'll get a job or about you know, whether you'll get health insurance. You, you would never know that, in fact, your Facebook likes have been used as part of a big data determination. And whether it's right or wrong, that could actually have a very serious impact on your life. Mm. That's where this gets really interesting. And, and I, it's not really a science fiction scenario. I mean, I, I like to sort of, to sort of think about, you know, just how far this can go. But this, these sorts of things are already happening. I mean, a lot of these studies are very much uh, you know, on the cutting edge. They're sort of within, you know, one or two years um, of what people have been doing. But even so, we're starting to see an uptake of these kinds of technologies as a way to determine, you know, what people are like. I mean, obviously, employers are already using things like Facebook to, to assess people before they hire them. But this is getting, this is getting well beyond that point. Mm, I mean, if you're mm. looking... At, at making predictions about somebody in order to determine whether or not you're going to rent a house to them or give them health insurance. That has some very, very serious implications. Yeah, yeah. We have no way to actually moderate but, that. I mean, we always extrapolate, I think, from incomplete information, right? So, I don't know. So, you want to employ somebody, you, you talk to them like for half an hour and you read their, their CV. So, you would always also look at their clothes and see like, you know, how they shake their ha- your hand and, I, you know, that's that's what we do. And, and I think that's a really... That's a really good example because you get to participate in that. You get to exactly. Stay. At least you have a chance, like to, <laughs> to make a difference. To yeah. find CV, you know. But yeah. this is a situation where you will not even know. And mm-hmm. and those kinds of predictive modeling processes, in some cases, I actually think predictive modeling is actually really primitive. In in some cases, where it's it's really it's really not that great yet. Uh, so you've got this very coarse grain data, which has been used in ways that sometimes can be quite accurate. Sometimes mm-hmm. it isn't. Mm-hmm. And you're not even aware that it's it's part of the mix. So that that's what I think is 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 the ethical question that we need to ask. So what do we demand? Like that, for instance, if if there's like a company using that data, should they be? So if they have some, let's say a credit company like a bank, you know, they, do they have to open up the the black box of the algorithm and and specify exactly which attributes they use? Would, would that be a solution? I, I think not. And this is where it gets really interesting because, of course, at the level of the algorithm. In many cases, even the designers of the algorithm can't tell you how it's working. Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, you know, if you talk to people at Amazon, if you talk to mm. people at Google, if you talk to people at Microsoft, they can, you know, they, they will tell you that there, there are so many algorithms and they're doing a whole lot of things that are by no means uh, yeah. easy to point to. But what I think we can do is we can go further down the chain and we can look a lot closer to when a decision is being made. So. If a bank decides to change your credit rating, we already have regulation to allow you to see how that credit rating functions. Imagine applying mm-hmm. that to big data. Imagine if you're going for a job and you, you have the right to ask, have there been, um, is, there, is there a sort of a big data component to the hiring? Can I see my file? And that could be something that you could say, yep, we've hired this company. This is what uh, they've told us about you. Feel free to, to, to correct any of this if it's incorrect. Mm-hmm. That, that isn't that isn't that far away from from being possible. That is something that we, we could actually see as being 
part of a, of a due process structure. Um, I think at the level of the algorithm, at the level of, of the data generation, it's too hard. I think at, at, at the level of collection, it's it's almost impossible. Yeah, But right. You would probably need a PhD in machine learning just to <laughs> understand what algorithm they actually use. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I think um, when decisions are getting made, we can actually we can we can look at the point of determination and say, what can we do at that stage? Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, and again, this chance to sort of interact with a real human and and put things straight. I think this this whole that a machine makes a decision that changes your life is is just not right. <laughs> and I, I actually know because uh, so we we were buying a house two years ago, and so I was exactly in the situation that a few banks would just turn me down without even talking to me just because I don't fit in some category. So, and it's really upsetting. It's, I, I can, I can report personally. It is. And I, and I think, I mean, I mean, banks have been doing, you know, what we, what we call loosely big data for a long time. Like in, in, in many ways, the people, you know, where, where I locate the prehistory of big data is with the financial sector yeah. and it's, uh, it's with intelligence. It's with, you know, organizations like the NSA and it's actually with climate data as well. I mean, mm -hmm. these, these, Areas where that you know very large data sets have been collected over a long period of time and have been analyzed for particular purposes, but we're seeing whole new sectors start to do very similar sorts of things. Those sorts of determinations about something that banks have been doing for decades. So banks are regulated sometimes uh, in terms of those processes, and at least we have the capacity to have uh, some visibility into things like credit scores. But that's that's not the case in all of these new industries, and that's that's what's more concerning to me. So, shall we move on to the last point? <laughs> yeah, I was just enjoying yeah. that, the pause. Yeah. <laughs> so, the third one was anonymity. So, anonymity is really interesting because we have entire, uh, entire sort of fields of, of expertise of people who are working on both how to anonymize data and then how to re-identify people from anonymous data sets. And... It's actually extremely difficult. And back in, the, uh, back in the 1930s, one of the founders of forensic science, uh, a man called Edmund Locard, wanted to find out how many points on a fingerprint would be required to identify an individual. And he discovered that, in fact, it was 12 points. Mm -hmm. you, could, you could take 12 points of someone's thumbprint. You could pretty accurately identify that individual. What we found out from a very interesting study this year is how many points of spatiotemporal data we need from an anonymous cell phone set to identify an individual. So those spatiotemporal points is, you know, where are you standing and making a call? Like, where are you in place and what time of day is it? So have a guess how many of those spatiotemporal points you need to uniquely identify an individual. I think we both know the study. <laughs> <laughs> You know, this is what's so amazing that if, it, if it's only four, which now we know that yeah, it is, you yeah. want to get 95% yeah. of individuals, you know, actually identified from a data set. That's pretty extraordinary. I mean, it's that's so helps. low the number. Yeah, it's it's, it's horribly so low. low. <laughs> I mean, it, it couldn't be lower. You know, it's like, you know, two or three is like basically impossible and four is like, the, yeah. 
Well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting. They found that if, if you um, if you had if you went lower, if you sort of went to two or three, you could get fifty percent. Oh wow! <laughs> so actually, you can go lower and still have you know you, you don't get the ninety five percent accuracy, but you can still identify a lot of people. Right. So that study that nature that, that came out in Nature is is extremely important because it tells us a couple of things. It, it tells us how important metadata is. It also shows us that. The way that we walk through cities, the, the paths that we make are, are unique, mm. that we're highly identifiable uh, and that we're, we're creatures of habit. You know, there aren't that many people who, who live in your house and work in your workplace and, and, and take the same paths between those two places. And that's, that's something really fascinating and I think quite lovely. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's frightening when you think about <laughs> how identifiable that mm. makes us. Yeah. Um, and, and the same happens when you bring two data sets together. So it's very hard to maybe identify somebody from their music taste. But if you also know about their food taste, suddenly, you know, it's, it becomes a unique combination or something like this. But yeah, and this, it's interesting. Oh, oh no, please. I, I'm just wondering, does this mean that any given company, once they get these four data points, they are, they are able to identify you or what? I just want to understand, I understand exactly what's the implication of that, what's the meaning. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think that the study is very narrowly defined and they, they were very particular about how it was done. It was using, you know, 1.5 million people's cell phone records in an unnamed European country and they had this data set, it was an anonymous data set, and they wanted to see how, if you had these spatiotemporal points, how many you needed to actually identify individuals in that set. Now, whether you're going to go through the process that they went through to try and identify people is a different question. I think it's, it's not an, by any means an easy process. And this is what's so interesting about re-identification research. It's not like you can just press a button and, and easily identify people from an anonymous data set. The mm -hmm. issue is more that it is, it is technically possible. And that if sure. you wanted to put in enough time and effort, you could do yeah. this. Yeah, and you have sort of these cascades. So once you have somebody identified, you know, and have their whole communication history from that previously anonymous data, but you sort of, you found your way into that, then you suddenly know much more about the person that also unlocks um, maybe other data sets. So I, I, I do think that there's a very, uh, very real threat there also. Um, um, that yeah, if once you get your hands on on a on such a large data set and can identify people, that you can do a lot with that information. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think certainly uh, in, in in recent years, even if we just look you know five years ago, it was actually pretty hard to get that kind of data. Uh, now it's a lot easier. So I don't know if you saw, but in July this year, AT and T quietly decided to change its privacy policy and start selling. It's aggregated, anonymized, quote unquote, uh, customer records. Oh, so, wow. mm -hmm. but you can go you know, if you're an AT&T subscriber. You're uh, unless you go and, and specifically tell them that you want to opt out, then your data can be sold in these these massive data sets. And and, and very few people know that that change was made, and, and therefore very few people will actually take the effort to to opt out and get in touch with AT&T. So they're in this data set, and now you know Verizon is doing the same thing. So it's it's interesting, you know, to think about the fact that these data sets are becoming public. Now, obviously, they, they cost money, so they're not free, but they're going to organizations that have a vested interest in, in knowing a lot about who those individuals might be, and now they have that data. So, so that, that raises interesting questions. Now, by no means am I kind of, you know, 
thinking that we can roll that back. That's that's something that those companies can choose to do. But that does raise questions for us as researchers in terms of, well, what does that mean in terms of how we want to use those data sets, how we want to compare and bring data sets together? Because we know how intimate and how sensitive and how revealing those data sets can be. Yeah, that's interesting. So every time I talk with somebody about the issues with data privacy, my my very personal feeling is that so I'm I'm honestly wondering are there any chances that we can really make progress? I mean, honestly, sorry for the for the negative view, but I mean, another option is just to say, look, I mean, there's no way to have private data, right? And we'd better educate ourselves that whatever we put out there is just public, right? I mean, that's another take on it. No, a completely different kind of view. Oh yeah, and it's interesting. And we could we could take that view as a thought experiment, and we could run with it. We could say, okay, everything is public. Your you know your phone records, your you know, your browsing history, everything that happens on social media. Uh, your location in the city, uh, who you go to, where your doctor is, um, you know, what kinds of medical practitioners you're seeing. Let's just make all of that public. And, and that's, that is definitely something that you could imagine as a kind of a worldview. Now, for a lot of people, that's, that's not going to matter. If you're somebody who's in perfect health, if you're somebody who lives in a country that has free health care, if you're somebody who uh, you know, doesn't look at anything that might possibly imperil uh, the way that people would think about you or employ you, then that's totally fine. But what's interesting is that that kind of data is can be used in very prejudicial ways. And what worries me is less those kinds of people and more the people who are already vulnerable, who are mm. already in marginalized communities, who already have less power, because they're the ones whose data is going to be used against them. And this is this is what we're already seeing in particular ways. So it's vulnerable communities who are who are already seen as you know subjects of surveillance i think that you know we have no privacy get over it argument is is really great for people who are who are already privileged right and i think it, it it's actually not so great for people who are, who are less privileged um so and I, I sort of feel like there's there's so much we can do i, I don't want to sound like a pollyanna and to be overly optimistic but <laughs> i i feel like there's there's an enormous amount of things we can do i think we can do a lot to be thinking about strengthening data ethics. That's something I really care about. I mm. mean, at the moment, if you look at the ACM and the IEEE ethics guidelines, they're, they're both 20 years old. I mean, the things that you could do in computer science in 20 years have changed so radically. And the ethics guidelines haven't been updated. So, I mean, things like that are, are really important. I also have an enormous amount of faith in pedagogy and teaching and how we actually train the next generation of data scientists. If we have a really good sense of how to use data ethically, that becomes part of how the profession understands itself. And, and that's actually really important too. And then I think thirdly, the, the thing that which gives me really hope is, is thinking about due process, which we talked about earlier is, you know, so if, if data is being used against you in particular ways or being used to make determinations that affect your life in serious ways. And I don't mean marketing. I mean, this is, this is much more about jobs and healthcare and, and getting a house to live in. At that level, I think we, we should have a right to see the data that's being used against us. Uh, I think having some of these are actually, you know, policy tweaks. I think there's also the level of, of, of social norms. So we could think about we, we, we're going to start getting a lot more careful about the kinds of, of data that we make. Public. And we might start doing things like opting out 
um, of particular types of data collection more than we used to. I think that the social level is important. I think the legal level is important. I also think the technical level is important. There's going to be some amazing new technologies that are going to help us protect our data in particular ways uh, that are on the horizon. So somewhere between those three things, and, and obviously those three things all working together, I have an enormous amount of hope that, that it's not over and that we haven't reached a point where where everything is going to be public, because I think that could be actually, that wouldn't be a very nice future to be living mm -hmm. in. <laughs> I think so too. No, and it really, I mean, that's the whole surveillance thing is not the direct effect most people have, because there is no direct effect for most people, but the way you change your behavior once you know, you know, you're potentially being monitored, th that is already the, the problem more or less. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I mean, many of our listeners are working with data and I think one big takeaway is also to always look one step beyond that data set you just have in your hands and you know just think about like okay given that data set what is the rest <laughs> you know so what is the exactly the part I'm missing out on because I'm just looking at that one piece like is there like a wider data set I could relate to or or at least check my data against like if it has the same distributions okay. and demographics and or if I'm Uh, missing out on a certain part of the population so i think it's often just a, a mental thing that that you think of that possibility at all that your data might be incomplete yeah. i think that, yeah, that, could part, that could be part of the color wheel too right you know exactly like, yeah <laughs> make one more step out of the box now exactly. another one <laughs> you know who in this data set might be you know could be could be seriously disadvantaged or you know damaged if you release this kind of thing i mean there, there are a whole lot of really useful questions that we need to ask ourselves as people who make and design data systems i mean that's that's a pretty it's an extraordinary an extraordinary job and it's an extraordinary capacity and the stuff that we can do with data is extremely exciting but we also have these questions that we need to ask ourselves and it's funny there was this um there was a symposium at harvard recently with re-identification researchers so these are people on the cutting edge of computer science who are trying who are looking at data sets and saying right if i want to try and look at this in such a way that i could re-identify individuals how would they do it and it, you know it's it's an entire research field but what was really interesting is that people in that field are now starting to ask questions like i've discovered this huge vulnerability should i publish it uh -huh. because it's going into the hands of people who are going to be using this for reasons that are really really suspect uh you know it does that, is that worth me just you know adding another paper on my cv so it's it's interesting that those conversations are happening right now Because people know that, well, in some cases, you can't put the genie back in the model. I mean, once we've, once we've found ways to identify people, that's going to have ramifications. And, I, and that's, that's a pretty extreme example. But I think in even the kind of everyday examples that, that we might have in, in you know, working with different kinds of data sets, you could just ask a question of, you know, right, well, so what, what are the implications of this once it's out? Uh, and some of the time, you know, that might mean that you don't necessarily release that technology or you don't necessarily make that data set public. Um, or you have some kinds of, of, of ways of, of thinking about who's going to be implicated in that data. These are actually really good questions to be asking. Um, not everything has to be released. Not everything should be um, should be made public. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think related to that, we people working in in data visualization or similar fields, we have a kind of bias towards data rather than problems. I've I, I observed this kind of problem many times. I mean, we st our work starts with, oh, I got some data. Let's, mm. let's work let's on see that. see what we right? can do with that. Yeah. Mm. But if you think about how good an 
I mean, good science first and good analytics works, everything starts from a good question, right? And then you ask yourself, what's the best way to answer this question? What can, how can I get the data that I need to answer this question? And then there is a very long process working with the data itself, trying to gather either try to see if there is any data out there that can be helpful for your question or generate the data on your own, right? Hmm. So think about, I mean, I remember reading about experiments in in political science. Most of these people start with a with a with a big question and then go out and see and try to find a way to to gather the data they need, right? And sometimes this means literally going out and gathering this data. And once you do that, it means that you are part of the process of creating the data itself. And this is so much more powerful. Mm -hmm. And then you're much more sensitive to that is or you're aware yeah. of the decisions you made on the way to to end up with that specific data. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think that's an excellent point. That's that's actually something that comes up a lot in our research lab is is thinking about how do we how do we ask the right questions? Because mm. that's that's really that's actually where the most interesting work happens. It's not just here's a data set, how do I how do I make it look pretty? Or here's a data set, what are some things I can pull out of it? It's, you know, what is, a, what is a question that hasn't been asked in this way? What's something that we can show with data mm -hmm. uh, that, that really does answer something that's significant? And, and I think that's, that's also something to do with, with data science starting to get more interesting. It's, it's getting to a point where it's maturing beyond the kind of really, really early stages where it's like, oh, look, we've got all this data. Isn't it exciting? Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, so what? But what question are you asking with this data? That's a really good sign that we're getting to that point. Um, and I actually, I, I find that pretty inspiring because, you know, we're getting past that little shiny new toy stage. Um, and that means that there's going to be a lot of really interesting work done with data in the next, in the next few years. And, and that's the stuff that I think excites all of us because, you know, that's why we're doing it. Um, but it, that this, this, this issue of having the right research question is absolutely paramount, you know, mm. in the, and that's that's really what it's about. That's the value of what you're doing. Yeah, and, and the other thing that really, for me now in the conversation, really stood out is this, um, that we all need to work on our sense of data ethics and what is a good way of, of treating data and asking other people how exactly they worked with the data and, and, and to make that a societal thing. Because, I mean, regulations are very difficult in that area. Algorithms are black boxes. So, you know, we have to sort of make sure things are going in the right way. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because this isn't new. We can, we can look to, you know, the 20th century to see you know, when fields went through this, I mean, there was the emergence of medical ethics, you know, uh, which came from, you know, a whole lot of really awful things happening and people realizing that this is completely unacceptable. We need to have some very, very clear guidelines around how medical testing is done. Uh, very similar things have happened in, in the, the space of you know, anthropology. Like anthropology has developed over a very long time. Mm -hmm. at, you know, codes of, you know, what constitutes ethical you know, ethnographic practice. Right. Uh, and, and, and that's that's something which is a key part of the methodology of the field. Mm. And you would not, you know, do do incredibly unethical things like, you know, saying, well, I'm just going to spy on this person and I'm going to a research paper about them. And, <laughs> and then vastly overgeneralize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's another big issue. Actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's true, but we are sort of falling back into amateur stages there. But 
again, also because many people are working with the data don't have that type of, of humanities background or are not even aware that this type of, of, of standards exist, right? Is there like a society or a lobby for, you know, data ethics? Like, is there is it like a club of data ethicists? <laughs> I, yeah. I, I think it's to make them. Maybe they're, a, you know, maybe they're a secret society. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's kind of happening from, it's, it's kind of, it should be happening from the organizations that, that, that represent us. So if it's the computer science, it's computer scientists, then it's ACM, if it's engineers, then it's hmm. the IEEE. I mean, I think, I think those, those institutional bodies actually have a lot of power in saying what's acceptable and what's not. I also think, you know, at the level of things like journals, like if, if this is said to be, really shoddy data research that, that are doing things where you really haven't thought about the ethics and that shouldn't be published. I mean, this is exactly what happened in the medical field. Mm -hmm. You know, you were doing testing on kids about whether this, this particular vaccine worked and you weren't telling them that this, this was, you know, what you're actually giving them. That would be profoundly unethical and it would not be published and, you know, that would not be, that would not seem to be something that was okay. So I think because this is kind of a new space, this, this you know, big data science is new, we're still at the stage of having these discussions about, well, what would constitute unethical practice? And, and we need to have those conversations soon because a lot of stuff is happening that raises very serious questions and could have serious ramifications. And we don't really have those ethical paradigms in place yet, but I, I think we really need to. And I think the time pressure is on. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think we can actually try to learn something from how these things have been solved in the past? Like, as in the medical domain, as you just mentioned? Mm, I think so. I think that's absolutely uh, where, we, where we begin. I think we can, we can look to, hopefully, we can, we can actually learn those lessons without going through the disasters because in many cases what, what really instituted firm policies around, uh, around ethics came from profoundly unethical practices which, which you know, turned into terrible disasters. You mean like the NSA is spying on everybody? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, in Germany, at least, this has sort of totally changed the conversation. I mean, uh, so before it was more like a luxury problem. And I think now it's becoming uh, something that where everybody feels is he or she is somehow affected off, I think. That's, it's funny that you say that we've been having conversations about, you know, whether that could be one of the long term impacts of of Snowden releasing those documents. I think so. I think so. That's, that would be fantastic. I mean, that would be such an important thing to have done that suddenly we can start to say, okay, this, this affects everybody. Now we have to think about what ethical data use looks like. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Enrico, <laughs> you have more questions or Kate, do you want to like I was, have yeah. a final plateau? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I, yeah. I wanted to ask Kate, so before we conclude, tell us something super positive about big data. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, come on. I've never... Tell us a big data joke. <laughs> a big data joke. Or... <laughs> so two algorithms walk into a car. <laughs> yeah. And they order the beers for each other. <laughs> they say, if you like that, I mean, I'm totally sure that you are at least as enthusiastic <laughs> as we are about what are the opportunities of big data as well, right? I'm sure. So, oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be where I am working, uh, working yeah. at at Microsoft Research and at MIT if I didn't think that this was absolutely where um, there is so much exciting potential. Uh, absolutely, but I, I am, I'm just as inspired about 
getting these questions around ethics and due process right. I mean, that, that's just as sexy to me and just as exciting to me as the data and what we can do with the data. And yeah, need those just as, we need those just as much. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see those things as being downers. I see them as actually being exciting intellectual challenges. Yeah, and once you adopt that mindset, you might come up with whole new research ideas. And, you know, it's always refreshing to sort of escape that, you know, these... Yeah, always working with the same type of things, always doing the same type of stuff. Once you realize, oh, hold on, I, I could do, I could flip this whole thing 90 degrees suddenly. Uh, you know, that's if you're a researcher or a scientist, that's it's always exciting. Or also if you're a data analyst, right? Yeah. Completely agree. See, there you go. There's, there's a really you know, positive thing to say. <laughs> yeah. No, but honestly, Kate, thanks a lot because I think it's super, super important having people like you around trying to write down what are the problems and explaining to people that there are problems, especially to practitioners like us. I mean, I think that's Absolutely super, agree. super important, right? We need to have some balanced view and we also need, I think, I'm, I'm a, I think that education plays a huge role here. I mean, we have to start educating people, practitioners and experts like us, then we need to educate other people, right? I think the education is, is huge here. Mm. I mean, I've been working in this area for a long time, but I have to confess that I started reading or realizing that there were problems, these kind of problems that you've been mentioning through, throughout the episode very, very recently. And I think it's super important. So thanks, thanks a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, thank you. So uh, when do we do the color wheel? <laughs> and when do we found that club? <laughs> yeah, count me in. <laughs> Excellent. So we catch up. We can see in half a year. <laughs> we we can report on the progress. Excellent. It was, was great having you, Kate. I think it's a super important and super interesting topic, and one that really once you start thinking about it, you. I don't know, for me, uh, you kind of stop thinking about it or noticing like the biases yeah, everywhere. Yeah. So, yeah. and it's yeah, it's, it's a curse <laughs> and a blessing, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and it was such a pleasure talking to both of you. That was a really interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Okay. Thanks okay. a lot, Jen. <laughs>